Uh, we're going to turn now to look to God's word. We are in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. And we're going to consider the infamous Tower of Babel. I'm going to read God's word here. Um, and when I'm done, I'm just going to say, this is the word of God. Or this is the word of the Lord. If you could repeat back to me, thanks be to God. Hear God's word from Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Let it, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one, one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's try that again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for God's help. Father, we depend upon you entirely, life and breath. In all that we do, you feed us, you care for us, you give us strength to live another day. And yet we live in a delusion of independence. We think that all the things we have is because of our doing. So would you help us to return to the basics this morning, to be childlike, even infant-like as we depend on you I pray, Lord, like the kids' song, we would sing with our hearts after this sermon, after you address us with your word. Jesus loves me. I am weak and he is strong. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Infants are born with the capacity to see about eight to 12 inches away from their face. That's not like too far. That's like this, right? So when babies come into this world, they can only see that far. And that's um, just far enough to recognize their mother's face, to lock eyes with mom and to gain a sense of security, to gain a sense of recognition so a baby can know they're seen and loved by mom. And this longing for security and recognition is good. It's a created good. We're ultimately supposed to turn our gaze from mom and dad to God. That's why God put that desire in us as we grow older into adulthood to look to God for meaning and security. Those things are only found in the God who created us, who cares for us and saves us in Jesus. And all humans, all of us in this room and every single human in this world was made for joyful dependence on God. But these early, desire, uh, these early chapters of Genesis show us that all of us have turned away from our creator God. And this good desire that is disconnected from God has gone bad. 
This means this, even, this, this basic human desire for safety and recognition turns into a destructive pursuit. And that's where we're going today, to the Tower of Babel. In this story, we find out how we ended up with all these different languages. Remember in chapter 10, it talked about all the people groups of the world that came from the sons of Noah and they had different languages? Well, we back it up a little bit and find out how we ended up with all those languages at the Tower of Babel. But this story is so much more than that. It teaches us about the rebellious, prideful human disposition. The Tower of Babel stands as a lasting image for human pride. One author puts it like this, the elements of the story are timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world. All of us have Babel hearts. We all seek stout independence from God and from one another. And in this story, the the main message of these nine verses is that God interrupts our godless pursuit of praise and protection. By godless there, I mean just without God. So God interrupts our godless pursuit of praise and protection. And my hope this morning is we could see that this judgment ultimately is a mercy from God if you turn to Jesus. So this, this passage splits up into two pretty clear sections. Verses one through four is about a tower toward heaven. Verses five through nine is the Lord coming down to earth. So let's look at this tower that was headed toward heaven in verses one through four. The first sign of rebellion here is found in their refusal to spread out. Remember, God commanded Noah and his sons to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth at the beginning of chapter 9. And here, instead of scattering, they unite in the plains of Shinar, Mesopotamia. This is modern-day Iraq. And they start building this tower. This tower is called a ziggurat. That's a little tough to say, a ziggurat. But it was made of bricks and mortar. And a ziggurat was common in this time period. And it kind of looked like a pyramid. We actually have the image here, these steps going up. There would be steps on both sides leading up to the top, a platformed area. And there would be a temple at the top of this pyramid. But ziggurats were different than pyramids. Pyramids were built for dead pharaohs and all their possessions, and they would fill it. These ziggurats, they would be packed in with dirt. There'd be nothing inside, but there were stairways to meet God or gods. It was their way of meeting God halfway. One ancient ziggurat was discovered, and the name on it was Temple of the Stairway to Pure Heaven. Even Babel itself means the gate of God. We could pull up the inscription from an ancient king, In Mesopotamia, he built a ziggurat and he wrote this about himself in a proud fashion. He made it as high as a mountain and made its head touch heaven. That sounds like her passage, right? They want to get into the heavens. On account of this deed, building this tower, the gods Nana, what a name for a god, Nana. Nana and Ningal rejoiced. May they grant him a destiny of life, a long reign and a firm foundation. This is Warad Sin. He was a king during this, in this area. So why did they build a tower? If you look at verse 4, it gives us their reasoning when they come together. Look at verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And I think 
as far as I can gather, there's three main reasons they want to build this temple. They want to manipulate God or the gods. They want fame and they want protection. Let's look at these. First, they want to manipulate God. We see that in the quote above, this ancient king, he wants destiny. He wants a long reign. He wants a firm foundation because of his amazing deed. He wanted to meet the gods or God halfway. And many of us carry these Babylonian beliefs in our hearts when we say, you get what you put in. You get out what you put in. We meet God halfway. But this is not the God of Genesis. This is not the God of the Bible. He doesn't meet us halfway. The true God comes all the way down to us. And this is what we celebrate in the incarnation in Christmas. But every time we preach the gospel of Jesus, that the son of God came all the way from heaven down to earth. He didn't need our ziggurat. He didn't need our works. He came all the way down to us to rescue us and bless us, even in our rebellion and helplessness. And we all receive this gift of Jesus by faith if you come to him. In the incarnation, Jesus is the gift. And if you're a friend here who doesn't follow Jesus, and you're striving to be good, to manipulate God, you only do good things because you want good things back from God. You're like that friend who uses other friends just to get things from them. We've all had that experience, right? A friend who just uses you. You know, they have that tone like, hey, how's it going? And you're thinking like, what do you want? That, that, that wrecks us inside because we think that friend really doesn't give a rip about me. They don't care about this relationship. And you just feel rotten if you're being used in that way. But that's how we relate to God with these Babel-like hearts. We only come to him in prayer when we want things from him. We use, you know, stellar Sunday attendance to leverage things, to strong arm God, to get things from him. And when we suffer, suffering is like a litmus test of how we really relate to God. That Babylonian heart starts to come out and saying, why would I suffer? I've done all these good things and you haven't given me good in return. So if you're a Christian here or not a Christian and you've been treating God like this in a manipulative way, only seeking to do good to get good from him, let's confess these mixed motives to God and saying, God, forgive me for seeking to use you. Let's receive the true gift that God gives, not his things ultimately, but himself. Jesus is that friend who comes to us, not to use us, but to be used up for us. On the cross, Jesus gave it all for us. So let's turn from using God and seeking our highest joy in God, no longer building these works, these towers to meet God halfway, but to just receive the Jesus who has come down to live among us. That's the first reason. They want to manipulate God or the gods, but they also want fame. At verse four, they said, let us make a name for ourselves. They wanted to be remembered and praised for this tower into the heavens. In fact, one of the builders, likely Nimrod, He was remembered. Remember in chapter 10, he's known as a mighty hunter, a strong man. And as we heard, kind of an abusive ruler. There's a connection to Babel and Nimrod in chapter 10, verse 10. It says, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So we don't know if Nimrod started building it 
or if he just kept continuing building it, but he was seeking a name for himself, seeking fame. And the third reason here is they have fear. The third reason they're building this tower is they're afraid. Verse 4 says, let's build this lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They didn't want to be split up. They saw strength in numbers. And we have some sympathy for them here. I mean, like in recent history for these people, they remember the flood. Okay, if you remember a global flood that killed everyone, what would you start doing? Probably building a tower. Right? It makes sense. Also, as violence increased on the earth, people are killing each other, a lot of bloodshed. And as there's predatory animals as well who are seeking to kill humans, uh, they band together and we would probably do the same thing. Like if it was like a zombie apocalypse out there and it had just flooded like, you know, several decades ago, we'd probably start banding together and building a tower. But what we see here is that none of these excuses were justifiable. No excuse we have, no matter how much they make sense to us, justifies uh, disobeying God's clear commands. And the rest of the story of Genesis will show us how God provides for his people, even when obedience doesn't make sense. God provides for his people, even when obedience doesn't make sense, as we'll see in the life of Abraham. But I want to I pause here on this last desire for a godless pursuit of protection. Because I think this is one main reason, especially Christians, don't obey God. We're afraid that if we obey him, we're putting ourselves out there and he won't take care of us. Think about it. God commanded Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the people of Babel, they disobeyed God because they were afraid what would happen to them if they actually started spreading out with all these dangers. Instead of trusting God for protection, they trusted in their own building, their own technology. And I wonder if there's areas in our lives as Christians where we disobey God out of a, a kind of a self-defense, self-preservation. For example... God has commanded us Christians in multiple places, 1 Peter 2.9 is one of them, to preach the gospel to our lost friends and neighbors. That's a command. Proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. Do you disobey that command and keep your mouth shut because you're afraid people will respond in anger? God also commands us all throughout the New Testament to be filled with thanksgiving. Give thanks at all times. And never grumble. Do we disobey those commands around the water cooler or the coffee pot at work? Because if we think, if we're always giving thanks, if we're never grumbling, we're going to be really weird and we're not going to be in the in circle at work. Kids, kids, God commands you to obey your parents. Do you disobey your parents sometimes because it doesn't make sense what they're saying? The command doesn't make sense. This seems so much better. Why would I obey and come over here? Well, we do this in a hundred ways. We hold back our obedience from God. Or we just simply disobey him in fearful self-preservation. When we do this, we turn a good impulse for safety that we have from infanthood into godless rebellion against God, a good God who knows what he's talking about. So we'll see in a moment, especially in the life of Abraham, that the antidote, the fix to disobedience out of fear is obedience based on faith in a God who protects us and loves us. 
So we, we identify with these Babylon builders. By the way, I say Babylon because Babel, Babylon, same place. This is like the origin story. Um, we all seek to manipulate God to get things from him. We seek the praise of others. Let's think about Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We live in a fear-based rebellion against God's words, his commands. So let's see how God responds to these Babel builders. We're going to lurk now at verses uh, 5 through 9, when the Lord came down to earth. The Lord came down to earth. So remember, they were building the ziggurat so that God would come down. And God did come down, but he wasn't happy. He came in judgment. He was not impressed with their tower. So the structure of this passage is like a sandwich. If you're an academic type, it's called a chiasm, where the outside lines parallel each other. So you have people gathering in one place, and then you have people dispersed all over the earth. So earth and earth. And then you move in with these parallels. And with a chiasm, it's like a sandwich. The most important verse in a chiasm is the middle verse. Okay, so that's verse 5. To put it another way, because I know none of us are really scholars, if this passage were a burger, verse 5 would be the patty. So let's feast on this patty here. This verse, in verse 5, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. There's irony in this passage, and it's actually pretty funny. So here you have these people, they gather and say, come, let's build up to the heavens. Let's, let's build a name for ourselves. And they think there's something. You know, Nimrod's probably the guy. He's, he's rough with people. He's trying to build a reputation. So they're building, building, building. God comes down during the middle of their building project. And those words, it says, God came down. It's almost as if God, God got down on his hands and knees and says, oh, that's cute, guys. Make a little building. A little Lego set. Oh, that's great. God is not impressed with our skyscrapers. He is not impressed with space projects, SpaceX, billionaires. He's not even impressed with Tom Brady, the GOAT. (laughs) Amen. Well, that's that that Pittsburgh influence. We'll take Elon Musk for an example. Elon Musk just purchased Twitter for $44 billion. $44 billion. And that amount of money has gotten a lot of oohs and ahs from people around the world, especially online. But God has to come down to see this minuscule stack of paper that Elon has and say, oh, that's cute little guy. That could serve as kindling. We step back and we see the God of Job, the God of Isaiah. He says the nations are like a drop in a bucket. He holds the oceans in his palms. He shepherds the galaxies. He gives every single star a name. So God is not impressed with our technologies, our money, our pursuits of fame. And he comes down in judgment. God changes their languages so they can no longer be unified in building this tower in rebellion. Unity in and of itself is not a good thing. Unity on the wrong things is a bad thing. So they're unified in this evil purpose and God scatters them. We have a bit more of irony here too. If you look at verse 9, it says, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. 
So if you have a footnote, I'm reading out of the ESV right now, under confused, that Hebrew word, it says, Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. So what it would sound like if you were reading in the Hebrew is, therefore, its name, remember they were seeking a name, a reputation. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord Baleled, kind of sounds the same, the language of all the earth. So they were seeking this reputation, this name, and they got one. And the name they got was Confused. That's the irony of this passage. They were seeking a name, and instead they got shame. These verses should curb any desire in us to be famous on any level, seeking people's attention and their praise. So let's not be like these Babel builders who aim for fame. And at the end of life, if you do that your whole life, you will end up with shame and confused. Why did God disperse them? We see this in verse 6. We have the reason why God split them up. Verse 6 says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. It's a little confusing reading that verse because it sounds like God is kind of scared of their progress, saying, like, if I don't stop them now, nothing's going to be impossible, and they might take us over, right? But that doesn't make sense in light of what we see about God coming down to their puny tower. It doesn't make sense of the God we know from Genesis who created all things with his word. God is not scared of himself, but he's scared for his children. I came across this gem in sermon prep this week. If we could pull up that quote from R. Kent Hughes, uh, he's a really legendary preacher in America, but R. Kent Hughes says this. God is not saying, oh no, if they band together, what shall I do? Instead, he was troubled by what would happen to humanity if the human family was left unchecked. They would build up a delusion of self-sufficiency through their false religion, corporate security, and political uniformity. They would throw off God and attempt to rule the universe. And in their delusion, they would never turn to God. Their Babylonian hearts would become impenetrable and irredeemable. Here's a very real sense in which technology can be a created good and yet dangerous. Technology helps us live more effectively, more efficiently, and yet it can make us less dependent on God and others, and then we start living in what Hughes calls the delusion of self-sufficiency. Yesterday, I rode up with a few friends. We hiked Mount Tecumseh, um, and we were driving up, and we are pulling up the GPS, and we were talking about how our parents, the previous generation, like, even till this day, with GPS, they'll pull over in a new area and be like, hey, can I get directions to so-and-so, you know? It's just like, mom, dad, you have a phone. Just, like, look up the address, right? But our generation, like, we, we never do that at all because we have the technology. We have the GPS. But at least for me, what that does is it makes me live in the delusion of self-sufficiency. I don't feel the need to ask a neighbor or a stranger even, how do I get to Mount Tecumseh? I could just plug it in my phone and track that, and I start thinking, oh, yeah, I got this. But here's the problem. Once my phone powers off or my data runs out, I will feel my dependency acutely. 
I will have no idea where to go. And so what we're seeing here is God is seeing this technological growth in humanity. And he's saying, if they carry on in this way, they will start to think they don't need me. And that is the pathway towards destruction. What I want for us to see, though, is that this judgment, it's a real judgment on Babel, is a mercy from God. What if God let you become the center of your world? What if God actually let you build a name, a reputation? What if God gave you ease and peace, security without him? You would come to the end of your life and you would realize how meaningless all your accomplishments were. You would realize how empty security without relationship with your creator is. So God, in merciful judgment, he comes down to our puny little lives and he interrupts our plans with sickness, weakness, hardship, and relationships. I'm not saying all that suffering comes from sin like it does in Babel, but all that suffering leads us to feel our dependency for God. I wonder if you kids, as we get to spring and summertime, if you have the same impulse that I do, when you see an anthill, Like, even till this day, I just want to go down and, like, shake things up and just see where they go. You could try it this spring or summer if you see that, kiddos. Um, But that's what God is doing with Babel. He comes down to their puny little anthill, and he, you know, ruffles things up, and they start getting confused and splitting up. But unlike me as a kid who destroyed anthills for no good reason, God destroys our little anthills because he loves us. That's why I want us to see that this judgment really is a mercy from God. He's saying, you're living in an anthill. Get out of that delusion. You could find a fortress in me. Question for us is, will we receive this judgment as a mercy from God and learn from it? Nimrod didn't. He kept building. He kept going for a name for himself. He kept trying to put up self-defense. And this leads to destruction. If you go to the end of the Bible in Revelation 17 and 18, it talks about two main cities, Jerusalem, which is representative of the city of God, and Babylon, which is the representative of Satan and sin and rebellious humanity. And there, all in Babylon, all who refuse to flee from the anthill, to find refuge in Jesus, our strong tower, they will end up with eternal punishment. Not just a momentary judgment, but eternal judgment under the wrath of God. And so we see this prideful self-sufficiency leads us to ruin. But Genesis 11 is not the end of the story. As we go into chapter 12, We see that God redirects, remember, these early infant desires that we have for safety and significance. He redirects them from godless pursuits to himself. We see this in the story of Abraham. Like I said earlier, the antidote to disobeying God out of fear is like Abraham to obey out of faith in God. God called, and we're going to see this, we're going to get into Uh, chapter 12 in the fall, and keep trucking through Genesis. But in short, God called Abraham to do some very scary things. 
He said, Abraham, leave your father's country, leave everything you know, because I'm promising you a land that you've never been to. It's going to be all yours. He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you so many, so many children. Remember, Father Abraham had many sons. I'm not going to keep going. But Father Abraham had many sons, but his wife was barren. So he was called to believe God and trust in God, even though he was old, Sarah was old, and she was barren. This is scary stuff. There's real fear there, just like the Babylonians had fear about obeying God. But the difference is Abraham stepped out in faithful obedience. He trusted God. If we could see Genesis 12, 1 through 2, we see these realities play out. Now the Lord said to Abram, go, same command that he gave to Babylonians, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. If we could flip to Genesis 15, one, it says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Notice that God gave Abraham the same command that he gave to all people to scatter, to fill the earth. He says, go. That's the, that's the command Noah and his, son, or his sons disobeyed. But here, God promises Abram reward and protection if he obeys. If you noticed in Genesis 12, he says to Abram, I will make your name great. That's the same thing the Babel builders were longing after. But here, Abraham wasn't even seeking after significance or fame. And God in his grace comes to him and says, I will make your name great. That doesn't just mean that he'll be famous and he'll be worshipped because the rest of that verse says, so that you will be a blessing. So God makes Abram's name great because he's humble and he's trusting in God so that all the families of the earth could be blessed in Abraham's family and ultimately be blessed in Abraham's son, Jesus Christ. Also, did you notice that in that verse right up on the screen, it says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. That basic human longing for protection, for safety, God provides that in himself to Abram. God was Abraham's protection, the very protection the Babylonians wanted. Abraham didn't need a tower. The God of heaven was his shield. Proverbs 18.10 18, especially if you're struggling with fear, is a good verse to memorize. Proverbs 18.10 says this, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man or woman runs into it and is safe. Here, Abraham did not build his own tower for safety, but he trusted in God to be his strong tower. As we zoom out from Genesis we see that Babel gets reversed at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and in heaven in Revelation chapter 7. As we come to Acts chapter 2, this is after Jesus died for our sins, was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. It says people from all over were gathered for the feast of Pentecost. It was celebrating the harvest. They were gathered in one place. So that's a connection to our passage here. There are people from all over. And if you look at Acts 
chapter 2, during Pentecost, you'll have many different name, place names of where people are from. And that's basically drawing from Genesis chapter 10. So it's the reversal of that. And on this day of Pentecost, God came down again. The Holy Spirit of God came down and he filled his people with power. And he gave them strength to speak in languages they didn't know. So all these people who are gathered from all over were hearing in their own language, not confusion, but unity, in their own language, the wonderful works of God. And in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, God was beginning to reverse Babel. We see here that these apostles... And these other disciples, these men and women who followed Jesus, they were not making a great name for themselves, but they were declaring in all the languages known at that time, the wonderful works of God. We see that true meaning in life, true significance is not in making a name for ourselves, but for God. We were made to declare his praises. And as we get lost in that work, we'll find our true significance. We'll rejoice in the fact that the God of heaven knows us and loves us and will move forward on mission. Even though we have fear, we'll move forward on mission to make his name famous in Concord, wherever we're coming from. And all the while, we could be entrusting the fears that come along with mission to a strong God who is our tower. And then the final reverse of Babel happens at the end of the Bible. All God's people who place faith in Jesus will gather together. And this is the image we have from John the Apostle. This is the image of heaven. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, These people were clothed in white with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. They were unified and they were saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. At the end of all things, all who find refuge in Jesus will gather together with Jesus' multi-ethnic bride, different languages, choices in clothing and food, and with one voice and with fullness of heart. We're going to sing the praises of Jesus. Through the Tower of Babel, God is calling us to get rid of our self-sufficiency, to get out from under the delusion of independence. Jesus, through his spirit, is calling us to be childlike, even infant-like. He calls us to be totally dependent on him, as our protector and provider. So like a baby, like a baby, let's lower our gaze. Let's shorten our gaze. Let's get rid of lofty goals for fame. Let's stop seeking to protect ourselves. Let's lower our gaze from the heavens down to right in front of us, eight to 12 inches in front of us like an infant to see the Jesus who took on flesh to be with us, who came down to be with us, to save us, to satisfy our longings. So let's lay down this selfish pursuit of reputation and let's trade it in for the awesome joy of being known and loved by God and making this loving God known. Friends, God interrupts our godless pursuit of praise and protection. And this really is good news. He provides us our deepest longing 
to be known, to be recognized by him and safe in him. Let's look to our Heavenly Father in joyful dependence today. As I was praying to preach this, the thought from Peter came to mind. He says, you love Jesus even though you've never seen him. And this thought came to mind. Jesus loves me even though he sees me. Let's keep our gaze focused on Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it sounds weird, but we thank you for the hardships we're going through right now, whether it's in our marriages or singleness, in our sickness, in our worries, in our fears. We thank you for those expressions of weakness in our lives. Even our battle with sin, how we keep falling into sin, we thank you for this because it reminds us that we need you. Every single hour we need you. So blow away the fog of the delusion of self-dependence. Help us to rely on you like an infant looks to his mother. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.